All right, we are continuing together our study in our book, uh, the, the uh, Garden of Eden to the Glory of Heaven, which deals with the subject of God's covenants. We have more recently looked at the Old Covenant after having previously studied the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant. We're now talking about the Old Covenant that was instituted in Mount Sinai in um, uh, Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, when Jesus came, uh, the old covenant passed away. We said that the old covenant was kind of like the scaffolding on a building. God had established the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant was uh, being built and developed in terms of its fruition and its fulfillment. And while it was being built and developed in terms of its fruition and fulfillment, uh, it had scaffolding. And that scaffolding was the old covenant that was built around it, came along 430 years after it was established, uh, existed alongside it, if you will, until Jesus came and then was dismantled and done away with. And then in the new covenant, we find the ultimate and final fulfillment of the promises made in the Abrahamic covenant. All right. So uh, we're at that point now where the scaffolding, the old covenant is being dismantled away from around the Abrahamic covenant and its fulfillment, the new covenant. And so we're asking ourselves the question, what aspects of the old covenant have therefore passed away when that covenant passed away? And what aspects remained? Now, in our previous studies, we have talked about the fact that the ceremonial law passed away and the civil law passed away. We saw that the old covenant was a covenant of law. And in that covenant, God said, if you will obey me, then you will be um, a peculiar people to me, you will be a kingdom of priests, and you will be a holy nation, and I will treasure you above all the nations that are around you. You'll be my special people. And the terms of that covenant were that they would keep uh, his law. Now, the centerpiece of his law under the Old Covenant, as we saw, was the Ten Commandments, which were delivered by God to the people from Mount Sinai on two tablets of stone, which were written with the finger of God himself. Uh, However, God also, in addition to those Ten Commandments, gave what we call the Book of the Covenant. And the Book of the Covenant contained, and is spoken of in Exodus chapter Uh, 24, the book of the covenant contained uh, the civil law for the political theocracy of Israel, and it contained the ceremonial law, which regulated the religious life of Israel. And so we have seen that the ceremonial law passed away. One of the major purposes of the ceremonial law in terms of its dietary restrictions and in terms of its uh, feast days and fast days and all the observations that they did and all the separation they were required to maintain from the nations around them was to keep them a pure people by giving them a unique culture that was different from all the nations around them. And so the purpose of the old covenant was to separate Israel from the nations around her culturally so that they would not intermix, so that they would not intermarry, and so that they would remain distinct Uh, until Messiah came, that the bloodline wouldn't be dissolved and diluted and disappear into the nations around them. 
You recall that that's what happened with the northern ten tribes who were carried away into captivity in Assyria, right? Now, they were never heard from again. Um, and it was only the southern two tribes, Judah and, and uh, Benjamin, that maintained their identity while they were in captivity and came back and then were um, the Israel out of which uh, Messiah came. But leaving that aside, we see that uh, once the message became not preserve yourself from the nations around you to go into all the world, that there had to be a, a dissolution and a disbanding of these ceremonial cultural restrictions that um, kept uh, the people of God separate from the people of the world in terms of being able to live among them, reach out to them and minister to them with the gospel. Um, furthermore, those ceremonies were all foreshadows of the once for all um, sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So in, in the temple and in the priesthood and in all this animal sacrifices, these things all prefigured Christ. And of course, when he came, that which was the signpost pointing to him was no longer necessary and thus passed away. So it's important for us to understand that uh, we don't want to uh, try to go back and re-establish any of the cultural um, practices and prohibitions of the Old Covenant. There are people today who want to go back and celebrate uh, Saturday Sabbath. They want to uh, re-institute the dietary restrictions. Uh, they wear funny clothing and, and tassels and, and the little skull cap and all these things. And, and they call themselves Messianic Christians. And um, that's not the direction that the scriptures teach us that we ought to be going in. So the ceremonial law has passed away. Uh, God has stripped away the ceremonies that were meant to be temporary. And uh, his purpose um, is now that we should uh, have that middle wall of partition that separated us from the Gentiles, torn down and removed so that we can then go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And then we saw also that the civil law has passed away. We saw that it was God's purpose that the kingdom of God would be identical with the political and um, geographic theocracy of the nation of Israel. And so there were all these civil laws regarding um, how the society should be ordered uh, in all of its details and in all of its affairs and um, how that... Um, this political nation uh, was um, the representation of, of God's message and God's glory and God's kingdom here on earth. However, um, once Jesus came and the new covenant was implemented, we see that the uh, covenant community and the kingdom of God was now redefined and re-identified as making up uh, all of those, wherever they lived and under whatever political entity they lived under, it was made up of all of those who had Jesus as their king. And so it wasn't whether you were under King Solomon or King David. It's now, are you under King Jesus? And so the kingdom of God is expanded to include the whole world. Before it was necessarily confined to Palestine, it was necessarily small, it was necessarily physical, because you had a physical temple and you had physical ceremonies. The children of Israel had to come up three times every year 
uh, to uh, participate in the ceremonies there. And of course, that's one of the of, of the ridiculous things you see about Islam is that every Muslim is required to show up in Mecca and kiss the rock um, uh, sometime in his lifetime and to have the whole world travel to a single geographical point and engage in a, in a geographical ritual even once in a lifetime is a nightmare of logistics uh, f with reference to which the vast majority of Muslims are never able to do it. And in Israel, you were supposed to go up every year, three times a year. And if that was the case, then it was of necessity that the kingdom of God couldn't get very big, uh, either numerically or geographically, before such a thing became utterly impossible. And so it was God's purpose to preserve his nation as a relatively small body of people in a relatively small area until Jesus came. And now Jesus says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And so the kingdom is now established to cover the whole earth. And uh, therefore, um, we now have uh, temples everywhere. They're called local churches. We are the new covenant temple. Uh, and we now have um, a multitude of new covenant priests. Every believer is a priest who offers spiritual sacrifices. And of course, um, our covenant day is, is the Lord's Day, the Sunday, and uh, the, the, the Christian Sabbath. And so um, we now um, no longer have a political theocracy. The church now is the theocracy of God, and the law of God is particularly to be enforced and obeyed in the church. And as far as the world around us go, to the degree we participate in that political kingdom, we... Um, certainly influence it like Daniel did, like Esther did, um, like Joseph did. These are three examples of, of believers who lived under a secular king in a secular kingdom, and yet they had a big influence on the politics of that kingdom as individuals. And so as Christians vote and as Christians get elected to office, certainly we're going to have an impact upon the political nation in which we live and an impact for good. But it is not the mission of the church to reconstruct political structures into Christian theocracies, though that may happen incidentally. It is the purpose of the church to, as I said, invade the kingdom of Satan, to take captive his people with spiritual weapons in terms of a spiritual conquest, bring them out of the kingdom of darkness, bring them into the kingdom of God, where they then uh, have their citizenship where? In heaven. Okay, and they are soldiers of what? The cross, okay, and they go forth conquering and the conquer with the weapons of the gospel and prayer. And so thus we see this huge transition in the nature of the kingdom of God. Now, having seen that the ceremonial law and the civil law have passed away, not everything about the old covenant passed away. And one of the things that did not pass away is the moral law of God, namely the Ten Commandments. So we have the civil law, we have the ceremonial law. The civil law regulated the political theocracy. The ceremonial law regulated the religious life of the people and their cultural life. But then the moral law of God uh, directed ethical behavior towards God and towards men. And so we have the Ten Commandments. Now... It's important for us to understand that the Ten Commandments were at the heart 
of the Old Covenant. And the, that, that those commandments um, were separated out by God, by his particular actions and reference to them as being something that was superior to and separate from the ceremonial and civil law. A lot of people say, well, since the old covenant passed away, everything in the old covenant passed away as though everything in the old covenant was all homogeneous. That is not differentiated from one another. Well, God himself differentiated the Ten Commandments, the moral law, from the civil and ceremonial law, which were just written by men in a book called the Book of the Law. And, of course, that book was sprinkled with blood. But how did God give the Ten Commandments? He gave them himself uh, on Mount Sinai, written in tablets of stone with his finger. The Book of the Covenant wasn't given that way. It was simply given to Moses Verbally, Moses wrote it down. It was in, um, you know, some kind of a papyrus or, or leather book of some kind, and it was treated uh, differently. You recall that the Ten Commandments were put inside the ark, and uh, that was never done with the book of the law. And so virtually everything that happened with the Ten Commandments was unique, distinct, uh, of a more permanent nature. You write something on stone, it's way more permanent than if you write it on papyrus or leather. If it's written by God, it's obviously more important than something that's just written by men. Um, and uh, the fact that uh, it was placed in the ark, uh, all these things indicated that the Ten Commandments had a unique place uh, under the Old Covenant. Now, one of the things that I want us to understand, and this is the purpose of our memory verse today, is that these Ten Commandments were directly perpetuated by God himself from the Old Covenant into the New. And our memory verse today tells us that. So turn, please, in your Bibles to uh, Jeremiah 31. Now notice, if you will, <clears throat> Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. God says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, Although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord. So God says he's going to make a new covenant that's going to be different than the old covenant. And it's, the old covenant was broken. And he said, um, this new covenant is not going to be according to or like or under the same terms as the covenant I made with their fathers. Verse 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law 
in their inward parts. And I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no man, every man his neighbor. Uh, And they shall teach no more, every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them uh, to the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, what God says is he's going to take his law and he's going to write it on their inward parts. And you see, it was the Ten Commandments that was put in the inward parts of the ark, that was put in the inward parts of the Holy of Holies. Okay, And so it is that law that is now put in our inward parts, in our Holy of Holies, if you will, in our hearts, in, in, our, in the innermost sanctuary of the dwelling place of God, uh, under the new covenant, which is in his people. And so our bodies are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the law that God perpetuates. Now, the reason why God perpetuates the moral law and the reason for its permanency is that it is serves three purposes for the people of God And I want us to turn to the book of Romans chapter 3 and look at those purposes. The book of Romans, the third chapter. And I want to talk to you about the threefold purpose of the law. That is the Ten Commandments. It says in Romans chapter 3... In verse 19, it says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, why, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The reason why the Ten Commandments had to continue and be perpetuated was because they are the instruments that show men their sinfulness and show them their need for salvation. When you look at the Ten Commandments, you look at your behavior, what does it make you feel? It makes you feel guilty before God. And it's precisely that guilt that then drives you to the means of reconciliation that God has provided, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through Him that we have the forgiveness of sins. And so that's the first purpose of the law, is to show men their moral guilt and to lead them to faith in Christ. Paul said, I had not known sin, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But then when the law came, it stirred up all sorts of evil desires in me because I did want to covet. And through the law, I realized that I was spiritually dead and in need of spiritual salvation. Talks about that in Romans chapter 7. So that's the reason why the Ten Commandments haven't passed away. If they did, by what standard would you tell people that they were sinners in need of a Savior? Secondly, the second purpose of the moral law is Romans 3 and verse 23. It says, Romans 3:23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, We know that sin is the transgression of the law, right? It's the breaking of God's laws. So when you sin, you break God's laws. And what is that? It is coming short of 
reflecting and manifesting the glory of God. God's glory, among other things, are his moral perfections. And so this is the second purpose of the law. It reveals to us the glory of God's moral perfections. In other words, the purpose of the law is not only to convict us of sin and to lead us to Christ. The purpose of the law is to glorify God and to reveal his moral perfections to us. And that's why the Ten Commandments can't pass away. God would have to pass away if the Ten Commandments were to pass away, because the Ten Commandments are a reflection of the very essence of the glory of God in his moral character. And so the point is, is that God is permanent, and those things that reflect him are permanent as well. And so the law... Is a manifestation of God's glory. And then thirdly, the third purpose of the law of God is that it is a guide for our moral behavior. Jesus says in many places, what? If you love me, keep my commandments. Okay. Uh, specifically, let's turn over to Romans chapter 13. <clears throat> And verse 8. Romans 13 and verse 8 and following. He says, Owe no man anything, Romans 13, 8, but to love one another, for he that loveth another has fulfilled the law. What law is that? Well, it says in verse 9, For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it's briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, love works no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law, the fulfilling of the Ten Commandments. So clearly, the Ten Commandments are still enforced, they're still binding on the people of God, and what they do for us, having led us to Christ, having caused us to see the glory of God and his moral perfections, and then gives us guidance as to how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to, in this case, treat our fellow man based on the second half of the Ten Commandments and, of course, how we're supposed to treat God based on the first half of the Ten Commandments. So um, we have no other gods before us. We don't worship graven images. We don't use the Lord's name in vain. And we remember the one day out of seven, the Christian Sabbath, to worship God on. And then, of course, the way we treat our fellow man, we honor our father or mother. We don't kill people. We don't commit adultery. We don't steal. We don't lie. and We don't covet. Okay? So these are the guidelines for our moral behavior towards God and towards our fellow man. And, and so clearly the Ten Commandments didn't pass away with the Old Covenant. They were perpetuated. And so what do you see Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, and he, he, he doesn't do away with, with, the, with the Sixth Commandment. Okay, He just shows its spiritual, deeper, personal application. You're not only supposed to not cut somebody's throat, you're not supposed to hate them in your heart. And then he takes up the Seventh Commandment. You're not supposed to commit adultery. You're not only supposed to engage in the physical act, you're not supposed to engage in it uh, in your heart towards another person. Uh, and so uh, he actually enhanced and deepened the understanding and the application of the moral law of God. He didn't toss it out. And so what we find uh, throughout the New Testament 
is everywhere the Ten Commandments being upheld as the moral standard of behavior for the Christian. And so uh, the reason why it's everywhere upheld and continued to establish is because it has not only permanent value, but it's an essential centerpiece of the new covenant which we live under. You know, Jesus established the new covenant at the Last Supper. He said, this cup, which we're going to celebrate the next hour, is the new covenant in my blood. And so he says, uh, this is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And what is part of that new covenant? That the law of God is now going to, the Ten Commandments are now going to be written on the fleshy tables of our heart and not just on the tables of stone. And that's going to happen in regeneration. Now, there are times when you will read in the Bible where it says, we're not under the law, we're under grace. And similar type statements. And you say, well, how does that fit in with what you just taught? Here's how it fits in. Number one, we need to understand the various ways in which the word law is used in the scriptures. Sometimes the word law refers to the entire Old Testament. Sometimes the word law refers to the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Sometimes the word law refers to the entirety of the Old Covenant. Sometimes the word law refers to just the Ten Commandments. And sometimes the word law is used to refer to the civil and ceremonial law. Now, in order to understand where this one word, namas, is used uh, and how it's used, you've got to look at the context and you've got to look at the overall teachings of the scripture to say, ah, oh, the word law here is being used with reference to this or that. Um, and... Uh, I, I did an extensive explanation of that when I expounded Romans chapter 3 and verse um, 20, 19 and 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And the word law is used about three, three different ways in those two verses. Okay? And if you don't understand that, those verses don't make any sense whatsoever. So the question is, what law are we not under? Well, clearly we're not under the old covenant, right? It's passed away. Okay. So that's one answer for these verses that people say, oh, we're not under the law. A second answer to those verses is that even if the word law is talking about the moral law of God, when it says we're not under the law, we're under grace, what they're saying is that we're not under the condemning power of the law. Okay. We're no longer under the law in terms of the death sentence that it passed upon us for our sinfulness. But that doesn't mean we're not under the law at all. We're still under it as a means to convict us of our sin, as a means of revealing the glory of God, and as a means and purpose for guiding and directing our ethical behavior, even though we're not under its condemning sentence. So when it says in Romans 6.14, you're not under the law, you're under grace, he's saying you're not under the condemning sentence of the law, you're now under the grace of God, by grace are you saved through faith. So when he says you're not under the law, you're under grace, he's saying you're not unsaved, you're saved. And so this is the other aspect, that when it says you're not under law, it doesn't mean you're not under 
any law of any kind, but you're not under the law in terms of its condemning power. So this then is a general overview of the uh, things that uh, passed away and the things that remain. Now, um, we as the people of God, when we get saved, we are not delivered from duty and responsibility to obey God. Rather, we're delivered from sin, both as to its penalty and as its practice. And so, in that sense, we are delivered. And so, the portrait of a person conquering sin takes the shape of the moral character outlined in the Ten Commandments. Holiness is someone who obeys the Ten Commandments. Unholiness is someone who disobeys them. So we can't separate Christian living from the keeping of God's law. The essence of Christian living is keeping God's law, not to earn salvation, but because we are saved, not out of fear, but now out of love to God, and to show him our love and to be a witness to the world around us. Now, next time, we're going to talk about the other aspect of the Old Covenant that still remains, and that is, is that the promises that are made, we inherit those as the New Covenant Church. A lot of people say, well, God has all these promises to Israel that he hasn't fulfilled yet that were made under the Old Covenant. Well, guess what? Those promises are ours, and they're being fulfilled now. So that's the other thing. As you read your Old Covenant, you don't say to yourself, ah, that was all for Israel, it's all passed away, none of that is of any benefit or blessing to me. <laughs> Wrong. It's all for you. And we're going to see that as we look at who now is the peculiar people, who now is the holy nation, who now is the kingdom of priests. Is it not the church? And so we are the people that God determined to produce under the Old Covenant, in which Israel didn't achieve. But under the New Covenant now, we become those people that are described in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. And we're declared to be those people in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. And uh, so when you go and look at where God promised Israel deliverance and blessing and protection and provision. You don't say, oh, well, those... No, those are your promises. And that's what remains of the Old Covenant, is the Ten Commandments and the promises. Those are still ours. Okay? All right, well, let's pray together. Father, thank you for all the wonderful... Um, promises that you have in your word for your church... Help us to understand and grasp them. Thank you for the commands you have in your word for your church. Father, we realize the Ten Commandments are the perfect law of liberty that are designed to set us free from the destructive and horrific effects of sin. Lord, thank you for uh, the transformation of the law as being a source of condemnation now to being a source of, of blessing and edification Father, we pray that we would walk according to your Ten Commandments, that we would obey them daily uh, and recognize, Father, that Jesus kept them perfectly and thus we are justified, but we must keep them personally and thereby be sanctified. Lord, we're grateful for such a clear moral guide so that we might know how we ought to walk uh, in this dark and, and uh, perverse world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.